Joyride. John is my name. And my name is Ian. And you are funky. <laughs> That's very funny. I also thought that too. <laughs> I did say that very much in the rhythm and cadence of Prince singing My Name is Prince. <laughs> and if we're all honest about it, there hasn't been enough Prince on this podcast since the start. So has there been any Prince of this? I don't think so. So so new listeners may not know that both myself and yourself are huge fans of the sadly departed Purple One. Oh, massive fans of Prince. Yes. We both count the Batman album as the most seminal album of our lives. Yes, yes. It is simply the finest nine songs um, ever collated together in one album. Uh, ironically, though, at the start of the lockdown, people on Facebook were posting, you know, you have to put your seven most important albums in your life. Mm. And I somebody tagged me on it a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't pick Batman as one of my seven albums. Did, did you forget, or did you deliberately not choose it? I just thought... <laughs> this is the thing. When we're doing social media, we very often like to project a cooler version of ourselves than we oh, actually are. Yeah. My seven albums that I put on Facebook would probably not be my honest seven albums. Because there was no Batman by Prince. There was no bad <gasps> by Michael Jackson. But then again, I think most people would probably leave Michael Jackson off their lists now. Yes, true. There was no, I mean, if I'm honest, the first cassette album I ever bought was popped in, sold out by Wet, Wet, Wet. That should have gone on there purely for that reason. Did it not make the cut and there should have been, It did make the cut. And there was no hue and cry. What? Yeah, Who did you put Remote. on a teenage fan club? Um, no, I didn't put it. But it's that kind of... I mean, the stuff I was really into in my late teens, early 20s. So there was a blur album there right there would have been a charlatan's album and ride and manson and dilla soul stuff that i genuinely do love but if i'm honest to myself you know i did i felt like i was being unfaithful to my true music sensibilities yeah. by leaving out michael jackson and prince that's true. um so i did and i thought you're not on facebook anymore but i thought if you'd seen me do that every day <laughs> you would have been like He's lying to himself. Yes. He's just lying to himself. You'd have been like that. You know, remember that Jimmy Neal song where he just kept going, he's lying. <laughs> or she's lying. I can't remember what it was called. Ain't No Doubt. Ain't No Doubt, yes. Number one, Summer 92. But yes, you and I are big Prince fans. Big Prince fans. <laughs> and I think in, in these lot, I mean, normally we don't start with such um, um, sort of, you know, we normally start with more harder news facts. But I think in lockdown, sometimes you need to, to remember Prince. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to touch on it. We don't really feel it's our purview, our source of knowledge. But I do remember, is it four or five years ago now when Prince released Baltimore? Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is probably certainly the best protest song that I've heard in the last 15, 10, 15 years. It's a beautiful song. Um, and, yeah, we, we can't really talk. We don't feel we're the correct people to talk about what's going on in America at the moment, so we're not going to do it. But no. do seek out that song again because what's really sad about it, what's even more sad, I think, about that song now is that nothing appears to have changed. In fact, things appear to have got worse. Oh, absolutely. Things have, be have become a lot worse. Uh, but it is, it's very pressing when you listen to the lyrics. Um, yeah. I did I actually had that on there because I was thinking about that the other day about he wrote that song after the 
Baltimore shootings. Mm. And it's um, it is even more powerful and emotional listening to it now than it was, and even more so because Prince is dead, yes. which makes it even more kind of uh, imbued with tragedy. Exactly, and it was kind of it was funny, not funny. That's entirely the wrong word, but I think um, the fact that that was his sort of last artistic moment, like he became back. So we'd always loved him, and we still loved him, but all of a sudden he was back in the public consciousness with that song as well, mm-hmm. which was so close to his death, really. It was so close in terms yeah. of, of when he released it to, where, to when he died. And I think it was nice that he got that last moment. Absolutely. I mean, a tragic way, yeah, obviously. Definitely. I mean, you and I, well, me more than you, never really left Prince. Yeah. I was one of those people, and you used to get annoyed with me that I would do this, that every time <laughs> Prince brought out a new album, I would always tell you, no, no, this time it's really good. This time he's back. Yeah. Even The Rainbow Children, <laughs> which now... I can look back and admit it is not a great album, The Rainbow Children. It's quite pretentious. Mm. There's about five of the 18 songs have him kind of talking in a deep voice throughout the whole song. <laughs> and no one wants to hear no. that. That's not what we're listening to Prince for. But we have like kind of like been quite loyal to Prince throughout the kind of barren years. Me more than, me more than you, because I actually bought his albums. Yes. You used to just have to listen to them secondhand in my car. That's true. When I would say to you, oh, listen to this one, this is a good classic Prince song. <laughs> Although we did, I remember relatively recently that you and I went through all the kind of Prince sort of new albums and we found that there were some absolute belters oh, of tracks. It it was that way that when when he got complete artistic freedom away from Warner Brothers and he could release whatever he wanted, um he was still capable of creating beautiful music. It's just it didn't have that discipline of those nine, ten, eleven, twelve songs. No. Um, no. Just as we've, no, often, and he was... we've often said before that Emancipation could be the greatest album of all time if it was one single twelve song C D. Yeah. Not thirty six songs as it was. Exactly. Um so yeah, Prince aside, um mm. how's how's the weekend news been for you, Ian? <laughs> the weekend news has been very interesting. I mean, last week we were touching on the scandal of Mr. Dominic Cummings. Mm. And this week... We've all moved on. We ha- We've moved on. We, we completely... Well, I know that Boris Johnson and his uh, government would quite like us to move on. But this week, I would say we had an historic moment on Monday. Mm. Because we obviously had same Mr. Dominic Cummings appearing in the Rose Garden, mm. that area behind number 10 that's usually reserved for dig- visiting dignitaries. And I mean, the only, the, my most recent memory is when David Cameron introduced Nick Clegg yes. as his deputy prime minister. I mean, that's the last time I could properly remember everybody watching something being broadcast from the Rose Garden. Yeah. But this week we had Dominic Cummings after the funeral last week about him, about him, you know, driving two hundred and sixty miles and then visiting a castle. They decided the best way to smooth this over was to send him out on his own, put him behind a kind of wallpaperer's table and sit him on a deck chair and have him answer, do a little speech and then talk to the press. And it was, as I said, an historical moment because we don't normally see Prime Minister's advisors giving a live broadcast on national telly, do we? It's it's not common, or not unless they're just being the mouthpiece of their bosses. Not not to talk about themselves anyway, certainly. No. Uh, I mean, they keep saying, it's that cliche in every political podcast I've listened to this week, they always say once the advisor becomes the story, they should no longer be the advisor. 
And every single person that says it acts like they're the first person that said that. <laughs> You're like, I've heard that six times this week already. You're not saying anything particularly wise. No, no, not at all. And I think one of the interesting things, because um, you were saying there is they got him to go and do this. They got him to go and do that. He is the Spengali. He chose that place. He chose yeah. that table. He to- chose that chair. <laughs> Like, what do you think he was thinking when he chose that table and chair? I think the thing was he didn't want to stand. He didn't want to stand clearly because I think if he yeah. stood behind a podium, it would make it too political uh, as in a politician, mm. too like a politician. Yeah. So he wanted to prove himself to be different. I think he presumed, understandably, that the television cameras would focus him on him from chest upwards and so therefore it didn't really matter um what table he was sat behind and he didn't (laughs) really think it through that people would then go a bit further back we would see that he was sat behind one of those tables that are familiar to church halls everywhere (laughs) yes Yes, it did. It did have the air of somebody selling tombola tickets at a church fete. It? it really did, and I don't. I don't understand the rose garden. Not because it's where dignitaries. I don't really care about that. I mean, no. If you just told, if you, you know, I only know it's for visiting dignitaries because everybody told me so. It's not something that's in the British consciousness that we're like, no. Oh my goodness. No. Um, like if he'd done it on the that sacred rose garden, how dare he? If he'd done it on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, I think the nation might have been in up. Oh, can you? But can you imagine if they'd put him on the steps of Number Ten Downing Street mm. and he'd sat behind that table? How funny that would have looked. <laughs> if he just if he'd rocked out of Number Ten, wearing his kind of like casual chinos and open neck shirt, um, and just kind of walked around, sorry, I'm not, and then plopped himself down behind that tombola table in front of number 10 that would have been amazing <laughs> that would have been, that would have been so funny uh, and it's not even if i think one of the things is none of this is political none of it is about for me anyway about what policy is correct or not correct we know what the policy is we know what the guidelines are i think what yeah. this is is and he's not even a politician he's not a member of the conservative party he is um he is somebody basically that um is a civil servant and mm-hmm. he has been caught in a lie. And ultimately, he's flopping around trying to work out. And I think one of the funniest things, it's been in the newspapers, I'm sure it's been on many political podcasts and, and news shows and whatnot, is that the whole Barnard Castle, um, or Castle Barnard, whichever way around it is, thing about he was driving there to test his eyesight. Mm. What excuses did they reject? Yeah, that's what I want to know. Because he's meant to be this Machiavellian guy that, you know, brought Brexit on us that, you know, when nobody thought he could. Mm. And there must have been a list of excuses. Yeah. And what was below that that they were like, yeah, that's the best one. Go with the eyesight one. Yeah. I mean I mean what would he not just have been better to I mean I I mean it would have been better not speaking, to be honest, I think. Or not or just refusing to answer questions. I think that might have been even better <laughs> than what he actually did. Or I mean, if it had been me. I would just have put my hands up and said, look, I'd been in isolation for two weeks. I was bored. It was my wife's birthday. My child had been cooped up for two weeks. We thought, you know what? We'll go to this castle. We'll not go out. We'll just kind of sit on a bench and then we'll come back. I did wrong. I'm really sorry. It was stupid of me. I'm and sorry, I 
Siri understands. Um, and I think if he just done that and he put his hands up and said, "Look, I'm sorry," I think people, not everybody would have moved on, but I think the majority of people would have moved on if he'd just done that. I think... certainly wouldn't still be talking about it at the weekend after where we are now. No, I mean I think we said this last week, but if he'd uh, right at the start of it, if he just come out and said, "You know what? I was worried. I was scared." I didn't know what was going to happen, so I went yeah. to Durham, and it probably wasn't the right thing. And do I regret it? No, I don't actually regret it because I feel I was safe from my family, we're safer up in Durham, but it was wrong to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, I to, and just admit that. that it does go against the spirit, if anything. And I know he was saying, like, you know, there are, if you look at the rules, there are kind of like exceptions. If he just said, look, it does, it, I understand it does go against the whole spirit of the lockdown. But I genuinely at the time didn't think it was wrong and I thought I was quite safe to do what I was doing. But I do acknowledge it doesn't look good and I apologise for that and I apologise to all the people out there who have suffered and who have, you know, gone without for a long time and the sacrifices that people have made, whether it's professionally or personally, a lot of sacrifices have been made, but there was none of that. It was just, it was just, no, 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 I'm not apologising. No, I haven't done anything wrong. No, why should I? Exactly. And what I find quite odd is some of the news stories this morning, we're recording this on Sunday, is that some of the news stories are talking about a Labour whip, or former now Labour whip, who has resigned because she um, went for a walk with her um, boyfriend during lockdown before, obviously, you were allowed to go for a walk. But the point is she's resigned. Mm-hmm. And I think that that I mean I know other people have said well she's not the government and and that that doesn't really matter because she's in a you know a a role where she should be setting an example too, but the point mm-hmm. is she's resigned, so yes. if you're going to bring up that as your well look at what the other side are doing yes then you have to accept that you need to resign from your job. <laughs> I mean you look at this the Scottish Chief Medical Officer mm-hmm. Catherine Calderwood, she had to resign. Yeah. Neil Ferguson, the guy who's in charge of the whole sort of science behind the lockdown, he had to resign. Exactly. And I would argue that what Mr Cummings has done is maybe slightly more dangerous. I mean, the problem I have this week, and again, it's not really political, but the, the problem I have is watching every politician go on telly and then be asked questions by the job, quite rightly by the journalists, you know, mm-hmm. things like, so what would you say to parents who think they may have childcare issues and blah, 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 blah. And they give these really fudgy, wishy-washy answers purely to not implicate Dominic Cummings. So instead of giving out good, solid public health advice, they're giving out really grey, fudgy advice because they don't want to say something that contravenes and contradicts what Dominic Cummings did. And that is incredibly dangerous. It is. It is really dangerous. And I think that what you're seeing and... I mean, I think I think you do this a little bit as well as I do. Is one of the things I often do is relate normal life to football a bit more than I probably should, and it kind of as if football has answers. But one of the things they say about um, a football team is, as soon as a f- football player can begin to blame something other than their own performance, they will. So if they can blame the referee, they will. If they can blame the manager, they will. If they can blame any kind of environmental things, they will. Oh, yeah. The thing is, footballers yeah. aren't any different from any other humans. And if you look at, certainly England, how many people are going to beaches? How many people are now on the roads? How many people are, who have been so obeying and have been so righteous in mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing via lockdown? 
and they're going out and they're going for picnics with people not in their families but they're not really sitting two meters away because people don't really know how far two meters is um no. you know that they're breaking lockdown certainly the spirit of it if not the letter of it and the thing about it is what and it's not that they're going to turn around and go well donovan cummings can do it it's the it's the what you're just saying there is the wishy-washy stuff that's coming out from mm -hmm. authority now. It's not just yeah. one man did it, so oh, I can do it. It's more the fact that with so many people trying to defend him, um, and not just politicians, but on the radio, on you know, you because obviously we have to have the two sides of them. So if you've got one person saying he should resign, you've got to have one person saying, well, you know, he probably shouldn't. There's a reason for it, etc. Yeah, it's uh, that's where the the problem lies, I think. And I think, I did you watch the Newsnight episode that caused quite a lot of stuff? I only saw the clip of the opening. Right. See, when I watched, I actually did watch the whole. I don't normally watch Newsnight. I haven't watched it for a while, but I'd seen that clip of Emily Maitlis, and I thought, oh, I'm going to watch that. That sounds quite good. Mm. And it was really good. I mean, not just her opening monologue, but there was a piece after that where they kind of they showed on the screen the actual rules that were written down by the government and were sent to every household in a letter. And they went through certain moments of Dominic Cummings' admitted story and they said, like, you know, there's a part where he definitely broke the rules. There's another bit where he broke the rules. And all they did was present that mm. as a fact, which it was. And there was complaints put in and she's now currently no longer presenting Newsnight. Mm. It's uh, strange times. It is strange times. Uh, and one of the things that I was thinking yesterday, it came into my mind yesterday, is that, you know, it's a really difficult time for so many people in Britain. Um, it, what I heard on the radio was quite interesting because there was a, I don't know if you heard this, but there was a, an Extinction Rebellion protest yesterday. Um, right. It's socially distanced one um, mm -hmm. across the country. I, don't, I didn't really get that much coverage, but there was one yesterday. Um, and I thought, well, that's, that was really interesting. I thought is that they were using, obviously, the social distance guidelines um, and trying to do things correctly. But they still believe that that's the biggest threat to humanity we have, climate change, which it is, really. We'll get through, we'll get through um, the coronavirus crisis. We'll, we'll be able to conquer that eventually, even if it does take Well, it is, months. I mean... Yeah, coronavirus is a reversible yeah. and treatable threat, whereas you know the concerns we have for climate change. Yeah, I mean they are they are also um, reversible, but yeah. because it um, impinges on people's rights to travel and do all the things they're used to doing, it's maybe not so easy to do. No, and I thought it was. I think that was maybe the third or the fourth segment on the news, um, and it was just a brief radio news um, bulletin. And one of the things is, as I was listening, I was like, oh, that's that's quite good still that they can still make it onto the news yeah. at this time. Because there are other campaigns and campaigning groups that, because of coronavirus and, and, and Brexit have fallen off the radar. And it mm. got me thinking that what's happened to Fathers for Justice? It really made me think, are there oh, yeah. people dressed as Batman? all over the country, climbing council buildings, and nobody notices. Socially distancing, as they do so. Because have fathers got justice? I, well, did, did they make any changes to the, the laws? I don't. After the Fathers for Justice guys chained themselves to Buckingham Palace dressed up as 
Batman, Fred Flintstone. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. And yet, for some reason, they all decided to pack up their costumes. Well, we've had justice. I mean, do Let's they send have the fancy dress? I don't know. That that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't believe say... there were any. I don't think there were any huge family laws that were changed because of the men dressed up as superheroes. <laughs> um, no, but then and it's funny you say that because. I haven't thought about them for a long time. No, I don't know what made me think of them either. If I'm quite, I mean, were you contemplating get out dressed as Batman? And you thought, oh, I might look like one of those Fathers for Justice guys. I don't know. I better I... not take any handcuffs with me, or I might get arrested. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what the the, the thought process was. Maybe I'm just the last the last big. Mm. I make it sound like they had an album out. But the last <laughs> big thing they did was about two or three years ago when they they were the ones that led the the kind of call for mother care to be changed to parent care. You, that was Fathers for Justice you, because they said it made it sound that only mothers looked after their children and they wanted mother care to become parent care. <laughs> and people pointed out it had been called mother care since about 1955. Yes. And that was just, that was the name of the company and it wasn't an insidious name. It was just the name yes. of the company. I mean, I must admit, I've never seen the name mother care and thought, oh, that's offensive to me as a father. Because <laughs> I have children, obviously, and I don't think, well, that's really offensive. That suggests that I don't actually care for my children. It's only mothers that care. But maybe that was maybe that was it. Maybe they did that and they got such a bad response. They packed up the little the little costumes. They put it all into the- maybe they're all maybe they're all sitting in their little bat caves planning their next um well, campaign. But I mean I don't yeah. know if you remember seeing images of them. Because uh, obviously I'd never met a father for justice, but what, when you saw the the images of them dressed as Batman, it was always you know men in their mid to late thirties, early forties, white men, slightly overweight. Um, I am just imagining and presuming that they just joined the Brexit bandwagon and they thought this oh, is a campaign possibly. we can maybe win. And we don't need to dress up as superheroes to do no, it. No, and I'm not as young as I used to be, and I'm not sure I can climb up these railings anymore. <laughs> right. Well, that, I mean, that does make sense. That I does mean, make you, sense. you can just see them, can't you? you and know. they'll now be the well, the ones that we were talking about last week or two weeks ago, the ones who were protesting against lockdown measures. Oh, yeah. I imagine quite a few of them were probably ex Fathers for Justice types. That's true. Yes. Mm. If anyone's thinking that the 5G masks are why we have coronavirus, I imagine they once demanded justice because they cheated on their wives and they demanded justice because they were having to pay alimony to said wives. And the best way to get said justice was to dress (laughs) up as Aquaman and handcuff yourself to the railings of an, a, a place of historical significance. <laughs> well, you see, that's why I think Fathers for Justice actually, now you've just mentioned that, is much longer ago than I thought, because they were very much Batman, Spider-Man, Superman. Yeah. None of them, the, you know, the Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe, yeah. they didn't Aquaman, really go near. Yeah, Aquaman, Iron Man wouldn't have been a big thing then. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, as soon as I said Aquaman, I was like, no, that's too niche. Yeah. <laughs> the Fathers for Justice, it was Batman, and Superman and Spider-Man and probably not Wonder Woman. But yeah, that would have been it. <laughs> exactly. Spider-Man, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I have been thinking about Fathers for Justice this week. That's been in my head. Oh, that's good. Uh, it's, good that you're, I mean, it's good that your brain functions on a sort of topical level. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes we, you'd think that in lockdown, 
we would be doing sort of deep dives into things that just disappeared. Yeah. Things that were once huge and, and, and no longer are. Um, like the Loch Ness Monster. Like the Loch Ness Monster. Are we ready for that? Are we going there now? Well, I mean, we're nearly half an hour in. That's true. Remarkably. So it's, it's, um, it's the Loch Down segment of the show. You've been working on your lochs this week. I was very much deliberately putting that in there. That was good. Um, episode two. Episode two. I mean, there's no title. It's just episode two. Just episode two um, of series one, obviously, yeah. of the loch. How did you find it, Ian? I said this to you before we started recording. I, I enjoyed, I still enjoyed it, but it felt more like homework this week than it did last week. Mm. I felt like... I had to get to the end, and not that I wanted necessarily to get to the end. Yes. Um, it, it, the, the sort of ridiculous elements felt more ridiculous this week. Mm. And it was little things that I found annoying and ridiculous. Well, let, um, before we get into the little things, let's just do a general overview like we kind of, like they do in professional type podcasts, is that we left it as in there's a human heart found on a beach. Yes, and in amongst the in amongst hmm. remains of a fake Loch Ness monster. We also had the death of a piano teacher who'd seemed to have fallen off a cliff, uh, but had also had his part of his brain removed. <laughs> we found that out after, in episode one because I realised after that in the previous after week. after his the parent of a child that he was teaching returned a pop music CD to him because he thought it was too sexy and he was gay as well, the, the, yes. the piano teacher. Got to add that in, that was important. That's true. We had a big city detective come up and take over the case from the small town cops. Um, yeah. And our main character um, was taken off the case because her daughter was sort of implicated in the the human heart being found because she was the one that created the the fake Loch Ness monster. But how carcass. and how was the human heart discovered again? Do you want to remind listeners? Oh yes, well, well, originally this is this was one of the plot inconsistencies we didn't mention from week one is that mm. a policeman on the beach <laughs> was packing up this um, this carcass thing and he found a human heart, looked at it, he thought, oh my sergeant's been a bit grumpy. Best not mention it. Put it in the rubbish bag. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then took it to, to a butcher um, so that he could incinerate the heart. Yes. Well, he didn't tell, not just the heart, it was all the remains were to be incinerated. Yes. And then the butcher had put the remains inside bin bags and left them, rather than just dealing with them straight away, yeah. left them overnight and some wolves got in yes. and... And took it. Uh, but, but that, we did get a payoff for the wolves this week, though. We did. Well, I'm not saying, I wouldn't say we got a payoff. We got a sort of explanation <laughs> as to why there were wolves. So yeah, so that was pretty much. Is that it? Was there more? I mean, there's probably more things happened last week as well because it was quite an eventful first episode. That's true. Uh, I don't. I think that was the main aspect. That's enough. We already did this last week. We don't want to go through the whole no. first episode again. Um, and so in this episode, what we had was, um, well, in terms of pushing the plot along, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back through it in my head now. And in terms of actually genuinely pushing the plot along we had the fact that the part of the brain that was removed from the music piano teacher uh, was discovered in a cairn uh, yes. that had doubled inside hands. inside a poly pocket inside a poly pocket but the poly pocket has somebody else's blood in it 
That's right. Now, what the police suggested was that maybe it's the killer's blood, but thankfully, we've got Don Gilly on hand, <laughs> who's playing the, I can't remember, is it Blake, Blake Albring? Yes. Blake Albrington or some Albright. bizarre name? Albrighton. Who's this um, sort of he, what's what's he called? I mean, he's a celebrity psychologist, psychologist isn't he? A forensic psychologist. Yeah. So when they're saying like, "Well, there's there's more blood in this bag," and one of the policemen says, "Well, maybe it's the killer," and he goes, "Oh no, he's too clever for that." <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's so clever. He's left a bit of brain inside a cairn. Yeah, that's really clever. What a clever criminal he is. Yeah. We also had, of course, uh, the fact that we had the introduction of these three teenagers who. Um, created this carcass in episode one. Evie is the daughter of the main character. Um, mm-hmm. You've got this kind of emo-type lad with big sideburns who is her sort of going-to-be boyfriend. That's Kieran, isn't Kieran, it? yes, who's got a... That's the one whose brother's in a coma. Yes, whose brother's in a coma. He's like a Smith song, basically, isn't he? What's that? He's like a Smith song. Yes, yes, yes. And then you've got John Joe. <laughs> who is a troubled teen and uh, we know he's, he's troubled a very troubled teen because he wears his mum's cardigan without a t-shirt <laughs> underneath it that's that's quite possibly my favorite detail i was looking forward to getting to discuss that yeah he's walking about at the beginning of the episode wearing a pair of jabby bottoms nothing on top apart from this black and white checkers cardigan that belongs to his mum but it's not a cardigan. and there's a nice I would, yeah, it's I not would a cardigan. It's not a cardigan because it's... no, I didn't think so. It was like something that some kind of glam rocker would wear when they were wanting to look yes um, it, asexual. It's a it most was, of it was strange. Yeah, and then there was a good, there was a kind of really hard hitting scene where his dad, who's played by Maury Hunter from Absolutely, mm. tries to take the cardigan <laughs> off him, and he's like, "Oh, it's bloody ridiculous!" And then they have a bit of a fight, and that was obviously quite edgy. That bit, that was obviously. I mean, the, the idea is that John Joe's maybe confused about his sexuality yes we see I, I don't think there's an explanation for it but he has a bottle of pills and instead of like just not taking them he just flicks them out of his velox window which i thought was bizarre as well <laughs> instead of just flushing them down the toilet or bidding them he pings them out the velox window i thought that might pay off that we might see a wolf eating them or something like that but that didn't happen <laughs> no no it did not happen um... and when he's and when he's flicking said pills out the window he spots as you do out your bedroom window he spots the doctor passing a bag of some kind of remains to one of the butcher's people that works on his dad's um, factory. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what? What? I, yeah, it's not. It's, yeah, I think it's an abattoir. I'm not sure. But is that is that normal that people live in a house attached to an abattoir? Normal, because well, I would imagine the smell's not very pleasant. I wouldn't. I mean, there are a couple of abattoirs local to where we, where we used you used to stay, where mm. I do stay. I don't think there's houses attached to them. No. Because they do, at certain times of the day, they smell quite strong. Yes. And I can't imagine it would be very pleasant living above an abattoir. No. And, and so, obviously, yes, he saw, he spies the doctor, and, and then he videos this and sends it to Evie, who doesn't like mm. the doctor because we discover in a very harrowing scene. And it should be harrowing because it's a horrible it should thing be harrowing. to have happened. Yeah. Is the doctor was supposed to be giving her a breast examination or a chest examination because she found a lump. And uh, he was a bit too handsy um, yes. with her. And it's kind of this very emotional scene. You think it should be. And then Kieran, her to-be boyfriend, says, did you tell your mum, who is a police officer? And she's like, no. And you're like, well, why not? 
I know. There's no explanation for it, really. No, I mean, it's just a bit like, well, why, why didn't you? You, you hate this man. You think that this man should be taken down, and, mm. and you, 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 your mum's a police officer. See, this is where the pro- this is where the the series starts to fall apart because there are all these little conversations. It's, it's the dialogue very often mm. is quite stilted, and there are all these very unnatural moments, like that scene where she's describing this quite harrowing experience. And then you are left wondering, well, why wouldn't she have told her? I mean, at least tell her dad, because she seems to go on quite well with her dad. Yeah. Her dad seems like quite a, a happy-go-lucky, jolly type who would probably be quite a good person to go to with that kind of problem. So that doesn't make sense. No. Um, one of the other bits I really got annoyed with, and I don't know if you picked up on this too, when um, Siobhan Finan and Don Gilly visited the, the man who's head of college, <laughs> who's got his own little weird sort of cave so he's, got, he's, got, he's got a kind of den that he locks yes. like they, come, they come in to see him and he comes out of this dodgy looking room and locks the door and they're both watching him do that yeah. which they talk about later on because they have to let us know that they actually saw that um, but when they're doing the interview some of the dialogue in the interview was appalling yes. there was a bit where like the college guy when, when Siobhan Finnan says oh are you going to like reprimand him for the prank you know because it was your pupils that did this yeah. fake monster thing and he says, well, you know, when uh, we've all done hijinks when we were younger, you know, break rules. And Siobhan Finnan sort of pauses for a bit and goes, have we? <laughs> and I was like, why did she say that? Like, what does, what does that even mean? I mean, what does that mean? Exactly. And it was the same with the interrogation. I mean, that was that was a poor scene. And it was the same with the interrogation scene of Leighton, I think he's called. Yes. Who is the... He committed murder when he was younger. He's on a life license because he committed murder. And... Um, He's been allowed to move to, to, to near Loch Ness somehow. Um, and, <laughs> uh, but the point is like that it's, it's really weird because they have this interrogation scene and the point is he has a very clear alibi because, yeah. you know, they said to him, where were you? And he was like, well, I was doing boat trips at 11, 12 and 1. Um, got the ticket stubs. And then they really get into his ribs about his past. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. well, why, why are you doing that? Why are you being so yeah. hor- horrendous? But she because... says things like, yeah, you, you got a taste of murder, didn't you? You liked it. And he's like, yeah, I liked it. And it gets, it gets really, really, it, it gets amped up too quickly. Obviously, it's for drama. Yeah. And they showed, that, like, they showed that clip in the trailer last week. But there was no need for that. It just felt like, well, that's excessive. Why are you, why are you being so horrible to him? And why is he getting so angry? It's, yeah. it's weird. It's weird. And I think that... One of the things is that I thought in that scene and several others is she, we know that Siobhan Finneran is a wonderful actress. We know that Laura Yes, Fraser we've seen her in Happy Valley. Actress. She's excellent. And uh, Laura Fraser's excellent too. Uh, and yet they're being given scenes where they're not coming off very well. And no. it's because, I don't know if I think it, and we mentioned this last week, and with each episode, I'm sure I'm going to become more and more convinced of it, is that... It strikes me that this was the writer's first attempt at a six-episode season of a crime drama, and he's got mm. a really good idea in terms of the. I think he had that image in his head of the body underneath the water, yeah. and I think he thinks that that's a very clever um, device to work from. He's got the forensic psychologist, and he needs to introduce him, and he's cool and he's dashing, um, but he's supposed to be having a, he's, or he's had an affair with Siobhan Finneran, which doesn't make any sense because they don't have any chemistry. They've got no chemistry at all. Whatsoever. Um, he looked, to be honest, you know, we're not to criticise Gile, but he, he looked like he might be able to have chemistry with Laura Fraser. Yeah. A little bit. Um, 
but again, like the, the, there seems to be like, we'll put this plot point in here, we'll put that plot point in there, and we're not going to really worry how they all fit together. We're no. going to, you know, like there was a scene, there was quite an excruciating scene between Laura Fraser and her friend, who I think is oh. the doctor, or she's a ambulance person. Oh, I can't even remember what she is, but she's the one that's interested in Leighton. In, in Leighton, yes, indeed. And, um, oh, we're going to come back to Leighton in a minute because I've just remembered something else about that. But, um, <laughs> yes, so have I. Don't worry, I was waiting to talk about that too. Uh, but yeah, she, there was an excruciating scene where they meet in the police station mm. and they're supposed to have banter. And it's just like, oh no. No, no, because all of a sudden, Laura Fraser, who's having a bad day and she's not on the team and she's feeling that she's left out and she's a bit, you know, a loose end, she's a bit lost. And then she just comes out and has banter. Yeah, she comes out and says something about the girls, the bags under her eyes and her saggy tits or something like yeah. that. And it just feels so unnatural to this because she's just had this devastating news. She's dealing with this horrific murder case. Mm. She's just been told by, by Siobhan Finneran that she can't be on the case anymore. Yeah. And then she meets her friend and it's all this kind of light-hearted banter. I mean, it's obvious, the scenes are obviously not filmed back to back, but there's no continuity there at all. No, there's not. Um, to come back to Leighton, though, mm. he has this difficult interview scene with the police but where yes. he can prove his innocence because he has an alibi yes uh, so he's in the clear he's fine apart yeah. from these people who don't live in the town which should be mm-hmm. you know definitely put forward is that neither Siobhan Finner nor John Gillian live there so in them talking to him they're not sort of destroying his view of the fact that he's got a new life because obviously they don't live there no um but he comes out of this interview and we see him and clearly, I'm not sure if the director was the same guy that wrote the thing, but the director clearly thought to himself, oh, I've got a beautiful shot here. So I'm going to put the uh, put a rucksack in the foreground and mm-hmm. I'm going to have Leighton walk slowly towards it. This this, And then he's going to bend down and then he's going to put rocks in it. <laughs> but for some reason, he put the rucksack down, filled it half with rocks, walked off, came back and then started putting rocks in it because there was no reason why he was like 20, 30, 40 yards away from the rucksack. No, because he was st- the rucksack was where it was. There was a pile of rocks. Then he walked away off. I mean, it was, it was quite a nice shot. Yeah. But it made absolutely no sense. Mm. No. And then, he, obviously, we can understand why he's using the rocks. And then he goes to try and commit suicide. But we're not sure why he's committing suicide because... Yeah, he like you say, yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't have any... Yeah. He doesn't have any reason. No reason. No. Well, unless there's something, maybe there's a character from his past that he's worried about being exposed to. Well, yes, may come but, to. But, but, but that, at this point, that, that makes no sense. No. It just seems like an over... It looks like, you know, he's had this difficult interview with people, as you say, who are not from the local community. The people in the local community don't know anything about his criminal past. And his reaction is to fill a rucksack full of rocks and jump off the ship. <laughs> and I must... Can I just also add, if... I mean, this is, the, this is a small thing that annoys me. His job, he's one of the tour guides mm. of Loch Ness. But he tells folk that it's not real. Yes. Would you want if you were if, if, you know, if you were taking some children out <laughs> on a tour of Loch Ness, a Loch Ness monster tour, would you want some cynical weird guy that doesn't believe in the Loch Ness monster doing your tour? I know that's his shtick is I do Loch Ness tours, but I say the monster isn't real. Yeah. So what do you talk about for the hour and a half that you're out on this loch? How he thinks about filling up a rucksack full of rocks and jumping in sometimes. Exactly. Um, what was the bit? There was a scene where he's talking to Evie's husband mm. 
<laughs> he says something about, I envy you. You've got your monster. And then he points at his head and he went, some of us have got monsters in here, inside, clawing, waiting to get out. And it's really clunky. And again, it's meant to be quite a powerful scene, mm. but it's not. It's very clunky and awkward. It's yeah. not executed brilliantly. And the writing is not fantastic. No, it's not. And that... And one of the things is, is there's clearly a lot of money being spent on this show. It looks well, beautiful. It looks, yeah, it looks great. I mean, the mu- I like the music. I think the music and the sound mix is very good as well. I yeah. think it's quite, it's, a, it's, it's atmospheric at times. Yes. I mean, that the, the car chase bit at the end was actually quite exciting. Yes. That was quite well done. Um, when Evie and, her, and the weird boy have been chased by this car, that was quite well done. Mm. And the shot of John Joe in that, camper van at the end with the scarecrow that was quite creepy and well shot as well yeah that, that was beautifully shot and i can I, I think to be honest is that the director clearly has a very good eye uh, um not necessarily for drama and dialogue but he's clearly got a good eye for visuals yeah um and i think that, that is to its credit i think that there's a the, there's two more moments that i think i i would pick up on um uh, again just kind of like what 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 were they thinking there is that the no, the chief inspector, um, John Sessions' character, um, mm. he has already denied the idea that the serial killer might be on the list, might not be on the list. We don't know, but there's certainly not going to be any press conferences about it. Then the man from Absolutely in the Abattoir walks in <laughs> and says, my son went out this morning and it's probably around about seven o'clock at night now. And... Um, We've not seen him since he went out this morning. He didn't go to college. Uh. Um, and he's wearing my wife's blouse <laughs> with a t-shirt <laughs> underneath it. Um, he's flicking pills at people as well. And so I think we need to put a whole missing persons hunt on it. Mm. And the chief inspector goes, well, let me just phone my superintendent. Yep, we're going to do the full press conference about a missing boy, despite the fact he's going to be missing for 12 hours. And he must be at least 16 or 17 because he's at college. Yeah. And I think there's a kind of implication that he's done things like this before as well. Yeah. Uh, the chief inspector says that. He's like, is this unusual? Do you do things like this usually? <laughs> and then the, the chief inspector comes through and says, right, we're going to have STV, we're going to have the Daily Record, the BBC. Yeah, that that wasn't good writing, was it? That wasn't good writing. It does, it, it's, it's not... I mean, I, I suppose we're supposed to say that this guy looks after his own and he looks after the local community, but it didn't come across very well. It just came or across as silly. they wanted to have some kind of press conference to allow for the you know the plot to move on and that was the best way they could do it was having John Joe go missing yeah um, and obviously John Joe we see in the last scene of the, sh- the show um, that John Joe obviously is in extreme danger uh, yes. uh, some, for some reason so he must be somehow connected to the piano teacher and the man floating under the ground yes uh, the last thing I think we should touch on um, with the show is that the brother in a coma scene where he wakes up and then the mum puts him back to sleep again. Yeah. That was odd. <laughs> that was I mean it's weird. You and I have watched this before, but I don't remember that. No. There's so many bits. And I can't remember. Like I, I can't remember I, I can I can kind of remember what, like who the murderer is and you know where that goes. But there's so many strands that I'm trying to think of because I can remember I think I'm pretty sure who the murderer is, but there are so many plot strands that I'm not, I can't see how they're related to the end product. I mean, the teacher thing, I can't, 
like why the teacher has the the guy's phone and throws it in the water. Oh yeah, I can't remember what his. If I mean I don't, I, I have a horrible feeling that some of these links end up being completely disregarded. Yeah, I think that's the thing is I think I remember who the murderer is. But as I watched last night's, uh, last night's, I watched it last night. As I watched episode, <laughs> as I watched episode two, I began to think to myself, "That can't actually." I must have missed something. Is is this the series where there's a school trip and somebody brings a gun? I think it is. <laughs> right, good because that's. I mean, I know that doesn't sound funny, but I'm pretty sure it's funny. But but that's what that's what I'm kind of thinking is that the murderer who I think it is yeah, can't. Yeah. From what we saw yesterday, can't be the murderer of everyone. Yeah. Because it can't, it literally physically can't be possible. <laughs> well, I think you and I can maybe talk about this when we're not recording. But yeah, I, I felt that way too a couple of times. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, we've given away quite a few plots, plot spoilers. So anyone who hasn't seen these episodes probably will be like, what am I talking about? If they're still listening. But yeah. I think it's well worth watching you know, you don't even have to necessarily watch episodes one and two now because we've kind of given you a, a, a sort of... We've given you everything. But yeah. it is worth seeing episodes three, four, five, and six because sometimes I still think... Sometimes watching a program that doesn't work is more more interesting and re-watching a program that doesn't work can be more interesting than um, re-watching The Wire and talking about it, for example. Because yeah. you can talk about The Wire and you can talk about all the socio-political things that, that stem from The Wire, but... As, as a document, it's virtually perfect. Whereas something yes. like The Loch, which has good ambitions and clearly has mm-hmm. got a lot of quality behind it in terms of acting and directing talent, um, but just doesn't work. And to try and work yeah. out what, why it doesn't work is quite useful because then when you watch something like Line of Duty, then you can see, ah, right, they're doing what The Loch couldn't do. Yeah. It's interesting to watch the two. I think. I think, I agree, I think it would be much more interesting to do a series of podcasts about films that that have very mixed reviews, mm. rather than, I mean, imagine, I, I don't listen to things, like if there was a, say there was a podcast series and it was discussing Jaws and The, the Empire Strikes Back, you know, all these films that are considered to be the greatest films of all time, The Godfather Part 2, mm. I actually think I'd find that quite boring. Yeah. I think it's much more interesting. I was listening, funnily enough, I was listening to a football podcast earlier on. Um, it's a Scottish football podcast. And because of the lockdown, they've run out of things to talk about. Right. So they're reviewing kind of slightly crap films each week. Right. And I mean, old like today, or yesterday's one I was listening to, they were doing Ghostbusters too. <laughs> I just thought it was, it was interesting. And it's like four guys about our age talking about Ghostbusters too, mm. And I thought, that's more interesting. Because they, they mentioned Ghostbusters, and they talked about how it was an almost perfect comedy. Yeah. But they wanted to talk about Ghostbusters too because it's, you know, in, in the same way as The Loch, it has many good features. It's got a good cast. Mm. You know, there are good aspects to it, but there's also a lot of, like, big flaws in it as well. Yeah. I think that makes for a much more interesting discussion and probably a more interesting listen as well. Yeah. So I don't think we will ever pick our best films and discuss them in any depth and detail. I think it's much more fun to pick something that you and I both genuinely like enjoyed and look forward to watching. And there, there are elements throughout this that I do like, yeah. but there are so many absolutely dreadful decisions that are made as well. And it's just quite fun. And I think, I mean, I did last night find myself the bit with John Joe and the blouse <laughs> that I was laughing at that bit. Yeah. And I think that the, what, the word you put there, which is, which is so 
important and, and is decisions. They made decisions and those mm. decisions weren't the right ones. No. So even though they so they had obviously they must have had option A, B, C, D, how do we play this? You know, in terms of the scene that we mentioned about the continuity between Laura Fraser and her friend, is that can't have been the only take. They must have done three no. or four or five takes of that. And they probably made the wrong decision in how they played it. You know, and, yes. and the one they chose rather, the, the decision of which take to take uh, was mm. the wrong one. And I think it would be interesting when we're finished with the law, if we maybe thought, tried to think of a sitcom that doesn't quite work, because I think that would be equally interesting. Yeah. A sitcom that's just not quite funny. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You've got to pick something that's not bad. Yeah. But it's just, it doesn't quite hit the right notes. I mean, like, we could never do I Want Candy. No. Which is the film that you and I, I think it's the worst film, or one of the worst films that you and I have been to the cinema together yes. to see. Or The Snowman. Or The Snowman, yeah. Terrible, terrible films. Uh, I mean, I would love us to do a commentary track of The Snowman sometime, <laughs> but I don't know if either of us could ever sit for two hours and watch that again. Never in my life am I going to sit through and watch watch The Snowman again. As much as I love Michael Fassbender's work, I can't watch that again. Uh, yeah. No way in the world. Uh, no. But anyway. Is, Rebe- is Rebecca Ferguson dead? <laughs> we, <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> we will never know. We will never know. But I think we should leave it on that note. Uh, That's a good time. Yep. Next week, we will look at episode three. And also, I'm sure there will be no news whatsoever. So we'll have to try and fill with stuff about supermarkets. The weather. Yeah. Yeah. What did you say? Supermarkets. <laughs> supermarkets. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Well, that's the challenge then. Have a supermarket conversation and a weather conversation. Yes. Anyway, thank you for listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves in these difficult times. And we do appreciate you listening to us talking about the law. Yes, we do indeed. Okay. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. 